This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. The United States may be facing its worst educational crisis in history. Nearly every state has closed its schools and nearly every district is desperately trying to carry on its educational mission through some form of distance learning. But are districts actually able to fulfill that mission? Are students learning anything in the spring of 2020? What if schools don't open next fall? The track trends nationwide, Robin Lake and her colleagues at the Center for Reinventing Public Education in Seattle, Washington have been systematically reviewing the websites of both district schools and charter schools across the United States. The center is now providing regular updates on what districts and charters are attempting to do. So I'm very pleased to have Robin Lake, director of the Center for Reinventing Public Education with me on the Education Exchange today. Robin, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Oh, it's so nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Raman, can you first tell me what you think is your most important finding from your uh, systematic data collection? Sure. Well, it might not surprise anybody to know, but school districts were unprepared for this crisis. Uh, we were all unprepared for the crisis. So not really, um, you know, passing judgment here, um, but our interest was really in tracking how were districts moving from what you might think of as a state of shock to providing ongoing education to kids? And you know, uh, we've been tracking this weekly, and so uh, the big picture is that initially, very, very few districts were, um, you know, providing real curriculum and instruction and monitoring progress of kids. The number has grown a lot as the weeks have gone by, but still only about half are providing what we think of as um, kind of a, a coherent, comprehensive education and leaving the rest to families to cope with. So there has been a change though, right? You start, it starts out at a, and almost nobody's providing anything to now about half of the districts are moving towards some kind of instruction at least as they say on their websites, but you really know what the teachers are doing behind those websites? Yeah, that's a, you know, it's a limitation. Um, we wanted to get, we, we started with the assumption that some information was better than no information. So we'll be tracking more information as it's coming in from surveys and other sources. But um, what one of the things that we really wanted to know, Paul, was how many districts are saying um, to families, or we can't do anything for you right now. And then how many were leaving it up to schools to make the decision themselves. And so what we're seeing now, and again, as you say, things have been changing pretty rapidly, but um, about a third of the districts are really delegating the responsibility to schools with varied levels of expectations about what that looks like. So. Here again, I think we see um, both the upside and downside of decentralization. <laughs> we don't know exactly what's going on there, but there could be, um, you know, we know that there are really innovative teachers and really determined teachers reaching out to families, providing special education services. Um, so, yeah, yeah, there's a lot underneath um, the hood that we need to better understand. But when we put our findings up against other surveys and polls of, of families and teachers and things, 
it's pretty much consistent that um, for the most part at this point in the school year, um, a lot of families are still left um, the onus of responsibility for educating their kids. And, you know, to be honest, um, it's late spring. Um, you know, a lot of the core content um, probably was um, covered in districts and, and they may have been using this time for reinforcing material. My concern now is as we look to summer and then into next year, how are districts preparing for that reality and ensuring that we have a path forward for kids so they can keep learning? So uh, you aren't talking to every school district in the country. That's 14,000 school districts. That would be pretty hard to do. But so which districts are you looking at? How did you select your districts? Do yep. we know that you've got a representative sample here of school districts? We will. Um, we we are building toward a representative sample, but we started with uh, 82 school districts that were easy for us to get our, our hands on their plans. So we went through the Council of Great City Schools um, list and um, Chiefs for Change, some other lists of learning um, plans that were available and districts that were um, putting out information. We started there and that, that accounts for about 9 million kids in the country. So we thought, well, we'll start with the big urbans. We'll start with understanding what kind of the vast major majority of um, urban kids experience looks like and we'll build out from there. Yeah, um, but that's still only about 20%, right? If it's... Yes, uh, yes. and it doesn't, you know, we don't have, we haven't had a lot of insights so far into uh, rural districts, which we know, you know, are really struggling with, you know, devices and Wi-Fi access, things like that. Urban districts are too, but rurals um, are in sharper relief. So we'll have some findings coming um, this week and next on some of those broader dynamics that we're seeing in the field. Um, and also, you know, one thing that we wanted to do with this database was to catalyze other research. And we've been really gratified that many other researchers have really run with this question. So um, a number of folks um, have, uh, are developing um, a, a pro, you know, data sets of their own. Some are looking into states specifically and building out, you know, full universe of districts in those states. So um, that's, you know, I think in the middle of a crisis, Paul, we all, you know, from the research community standpoint, we all need to kind of, um, you know, open up, um, open up the opportunities, collaborate as much as possible because knowledge is power right now for policymakers and decision decision makers. So the uh, the school districts can put stuff up on their website, but they have to have teachers who know how to use it and to reinforce it. So it strikes me that a huge limitation out there is just the technological capacity of the teaching force. Do you see any signs of that? Yeah, it's it's been all over the map, of course. Um, you know, all of us have different levels of comfort with technology. And um, not only do teachers have to figure out the technological issues, and, and that's where, you know, sometimes districts have been great about establishing hotlines for teachers, tech support for them in their homes. Um, but look, they're juggling a lot of complexities. Many of them have kids at home while they're trying to teach. 
that's something new. Um, many of them, um, you know, are really struggling to figure out how they can keep kids engaged um, in a virtual environment if their parents are not able to, you know, do check-ins and things like that. So um, there are a lot of struggles and there are a lot of really interesting solutions popping up. So, so what are some of the solutions? Mm -hmm. We're um, we're seeing some uh, some folks. Success Academy uh, New York City, for example, has done a really innovative staffing model, where they're having their master teachers, those who are most comfortable with the technology interfaces and are are, are best at engaging large groups of kids, teach large numbers of kids in a in a lesson, and then they're using other teachers to do. Uh, regular scanning of student work, um, check-ins with families twice a day in some cases, um, just going deep with kids to reinforce um, and, and keep them engaged. Um, so that's exciting here as you know the, 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 the possibility and the reality of um, educators showing what they can do when you take the, the, the boundaries off of their thinking. So you mentioned uh, the uh, famous charter school network. How are the charters doing more generally? Are they doing as well as the districts or do they have a harder time? Yeah. Um, well, my, my first caveat is, um, you know, I think comparisons uh, across kind of uh, camps uh, is, is dangerous territory. Again, in the middle of a crisis, we all need to pull together. Um, that said, um, we have been really interested in what charter schools are doing with their enhanced flexibilities. And, you know, many, many of them are struggling um, in many of the same ways as districts. Um, but we did take a look at some of the largest charter management organizations, which again, is not a representative you know, sampling of, of, of all charter schools, um, but these larger organizations that do have a lot of management capacity. Um, and um, we did see that they, um, they really distinguished themselves in terms of um, pro what we call progress monitoring. So taking attendance, um, making sure that work matters towards some kind of grading system that's fair, fair to kids, but also you know, lets them know that you know, it matters, learning matters, and, and they wanna hold them to high standards. Um, check-ins with students and families. That's where they really uh, distinguish themselves so far. So how do you take attendance? Yeah, so, so my kids are in school right now. Um, and uh, it's from home. Uh, every, um, every class, they, uh, they have to check in, um, show themselves on the screen on Zoom, just like we're doing, and um, the teachers can see them. Many schools are not doing synchronous instruction, meaning you know, um, kids and teachers and their classmates are all on Zoom or some other, in, um, other format together. Uh, and that's where things get much trickier. We are hearing anecdotally from rural districts that because of the, the challenges around connectivity, they're having to deal with attendance in radically different ways. Um, they're sort of throwing that out and saying, what matters is that kids are completing the packets or the, um, you know, the, um, the work assignments that were getting to them by mail or delivering through TV or whatever. And um, kids can do that whenever, 
uh, it's right for them. We just want to focus on whether they're doing the work. Um, and I, just finally, I, I have been hearing from some online um, curriculum providers, those that provide, you know, math or reading curriculum and, and kids take those um, units online. Um, they're tracking, uh, you know, unit completion with kids. So I think this, this whole crisis is really pushing us to think differently about how we monitor progress. Um, is attendance the most important thing uh, or is work completed the most important? Um, and then finally, I just will add that urban districts um, in particular, but we're also seeing this in rurals, um, are really worried about um, not being able to get in touch with kids right now. And so they're less worried about, you know, whether the kids are showing up to their math class, you know, every single day of the week and more worried about where are they? Um, are they, do they have a home right now? Are they safe? Um, and so, you know, here again, we've seen some pretty heroic efforts to try to track families down through, um, you know, meal delivery services and just do those those basic check-ins with families because that's important right now. So I, in one big city school district that I've encountered, it seemed to me like they were providing education by putting the Google instruction kit up on, on the screen. And I've been wondering, is that a widespread activity that they are getting these packaged um, programs from corporate entities and sticking them up there and saying, okay, all right, kids, go at it. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so we've kind of had a spectrum of the way that we think about districts offering instruction, because that's a, you know, that's a pretty wide range of activities right now. Uh, it ranges from everything from districts kind of listing, um, here are a great set of resources, Khan Academy, Zern, you know, whatever the, um, the kind of um, curated list is from the district, putting it up online for families and saying, you know, go for it, choose from here and, and create your own adventure for your kids. Um, that's kind of challenging for families if they don't know what their child was doing two months ago, where their child is in terms of their, their math skills or whatever. Um, and it really puts the onus of, um, you know, kind of getting the kid to do the work and on the family. Um, kind of a step up from that has been districts that say, here's a lesson plan for today that pulls together an hour of Khan Academy, an hour with your teacher from two months ago, um, and you know, really packages that together for families. And then the most kind of um, structured districts are really doing that. Um, you know, really um, several hours of organized instruction that the teacher is crafting um, and um, and adjusting to the students' needs. That's well. It that's seems to me it would be really important for every child to at least see their teacher every day. It may not be for more than an hour or, or something like that, but they see their teacher, the teacher then sort of says, this is what you should be working on today. It goes over, maybe yeah. responds to questions and so forth, but at least they have a visual interaction with the teacher. Yeah. What percentage of the kids are having that experience, would you think? Not very many. So. Um, you know, that synchronous instruction, again, um, 
was very, very rare um, in our early scans of districts, um, really, um, you know, in the single digits in terms of the number of districts that were doing that. And um, it's increased over time. I don't know what our, our current um, numbers are on that, but it's, it's gotten more frequent. But here's an issue. A lot of districts have said to their teachers, uh, you cannot contact your families. Um, there have been a lot of worries about liability, about union contract issues that caused stasis uh, in a lot of school districts and, and just froze them in place. Um, and their reaction was, you know, we're going to limit all risk. Um, slowly, people have been working that through, but it continues to be a real challenge because, you know, around special education, around privacy issues, um, around Zoom bombing, um, you know, there have been a number of really difficult um, things that have popped up. Um, again, our challenge now, I think, is to use this little glimpse into this couple month period of experimentation, pull it together pretty quickly around what worked and what didn't, and get ready for next year. So now how about the unions, the collective bargaining agreement? How much is that complicating? You've already alluded to that, but let me ask you directly, how much is that in uh, complicating the whole process? Because yeah. those contracts are written for a completely different world, for, for a classic yeah. world, a uh, nine to three day. It's all of a sudden a completely different story. Completely different, completely different. And I mean, theoretically, most union contracts, if not all, have emergency clauses that um, create opportunity to shift things up pretty rapidly. But in practice, um, that um, has moved very, very slowly. Unions and their districts are negotiating memoranda of understanding um, to, to decide what, what things will look like. And that's where we've seen the great variation um, in our database, is just how much time it's taking districts to work through those kinds of things. One superintendent in Washington State had a great relationship with her union before the crisis, and she said that was just huge. When the crisis came, she could pull people into a room and say, all right, let's, what can we do together now? Let's get on it. And everybody just jumped in and said, yeah, let's move. But other districts just, you know, uh, didn't have that relationship. It was much more contentious, and that's that slowed things down dramatically. We're starting to see, um, you know, some some worrying developments. Frankly, this isn't coming right out of our database because we haven't been tracking the contracts systematically yet. But anecdotally, we're seeing contracts um, that are limiting work hours to no more than four hours and. Um, putting a lot of constraints in place that, you know, when we think about the enormity of remediation need ahead, it's inconceivable to me how we're going to have no more than four hours of, of teacher time on, the, on solving that problem. It's something that so thinking to the future, uh, I am being told by Harvard University that uh, we may be teaching online in the fall. Now, if that's being discussed very, very seriously uh, at the university level, can the schools be far behind? 
Nope. Uh, they're now saying about the virus that uh, intense interactions in indoor settings is the way this virus can spread most easily. Are schools going to be able to open this coming fall? I wish I had a definitive answer for you, <laughs> Dr. Peterson, um, but I'm not that, you know, um, not that knowledgeable. I will say that um, I have been tracking as much as possible um, one, what the medical community is offering in terms of guidance to schools. Um, we've been tracking what other countries are doing to reopen schools, what data they're looking at. It's, um, I think, um, uh, you know, barring some miracle, it seems to me that it's almost guaranteed that we will at very least be looking at very, very small numbers of kids coming together um, physically. So in many countries, they're limiting the numbers to no more than 10 students in a classroom. But some folks are taking a really strategic kind of triage approach to who comes back into the buildings and prioritizing students with disabilities prioritizing students who really have struggled the most with virtual learning, um, and then recognize that some students either have health conditions themselves or their families have health conditions that will prevent them from coming in. And so um, they've set up kind of a dual track system where kids are starting to come into buildings in small groups. Meanwhile, there's a cadre of teachers who are supporting families at home very aggressively so that kids who are staying home can keep learning, while kids who are coming into the classroom have dedicated support that you can only do in person. But that requires a degree of flexibility that's really not part of the American yes. uh, public educational system. It blows the mind, really, because, um, I mean, so many complexities. Will schools be taking kids' temperatures? Will they um, require masks? How will um, food service work? How will transportation work and the costs of all of that plus the remediation costs that will probably require some one-on-one -on -one tutoring support for kids are just um, staggering, especially when you consider um, the projections that my friend Marguerite Rosa is putting out and other smart finance people that many, if not most states, will be looking at 20-25% hits to their education budgets next year. To me, all of that points to the need to think way outside the box and make sure that, that um, there are no assumptions about what was that moved forward. We have to think about what could be. So how about the equity issue? You've already talked about that in many ways. Uh, a lot of people out there are saying that uh, whatever differentiation we're seeing in how kids learn by socioeconomic lines, it's going to get worse. That the, the kids, the have kids are going to do a lot better over the next few months than the have not kids. So you have good reason to say that's the case or maybe that's being exaggerated? Yeah, um, I, uh, one of the reasons that we wanted to put this database together is that we were really getting worried that, um, that the equity question was causing in particular the large urban districts to do nothing while the private schools and the suburban districts were moving ahead very quickly. 
and it seemed to us that doing nothing was going to be the most uh, damaging thing for low-income students, students with disabilities. Uh, they're most at risk, uh, they're most behind, they need our most dedicated support. And so um, we, uh, you know, there are a ton of examples of uh, schools and some school districts and CMOs that have said, you know, something is better than nothing. Uh, we're gonna charge forth and we're gonna prioritize the kids who most need support. Um, but, you know, I've heard stories from some schools who, you know, just heartbreaking stories of how many families have been affected by job loss, um, food insecurity, um, really challenging mental health needs. And yet the kids are coming in, seeing their teacher, uh, seeing their classmates, having a sense of normalcy, and feeling the love of high expectations from their teachers and the belief that the path forward is a good education. Um, I think that, that seems to me the most critical North Star for us to hold to. And the challenges are real. Um, you know, some kids with disabilities, it's you know, incredibly challenging to think about how to provide their continuity of, of education through a virtual setting when um, it's just, you know, um, but I think, you know, uh, much is possible and we're seeing some incredible creativity um, and problem solving. Well, yes, but I did read in the paper even just today that um, the some districts are closing early. They're, they're not going to run out to the end of the school year. They're saying it would be inequitable to teach to the end of the school year because not everybody is participating at an equal rate. So they're going to shut down early. And this is in several districts. Yeah. I don't know I mean, how wide it is. Are you, are you seeing any signs of that in your database? I mean, we've seen that, um, we've seen that from the very start, from districts saying we're not going to go online because we can't do exactly the same thing for every student. Um, that was coming out in state guidance in my state, Washington. Um, uh, but quickly when people realized that we're in this for the longer term than two weeks, um, they started shifting. So it doesn't surprise me that folks are, are talking about closing up early. And I've even heard some rumblings about um, schools may not reopen some school districts are talking about not reopening until next january for example um you know I, I, to me the um the extraordinary cost of not educating kids and especially not educating kids who most need opportunity um, and economic opportunity social mobility um, as we struggle with through you know it's going to be a very dark time um, it, the cost is just incredibly high and the cost to families of not reopening schools is incredibly high. So, um, as Bill Gates said on CNN the other day, education is a very, very high value activity. We should prioritize it. We should do our best to open schools and provide education as quickly as we can, as creatively as we can. Um, of course, working within the boundaries of what the doctors tell us is okay. Well, I think that's a good goal, a good goal. Let's try to open those schools at the beginning of the fall season and see if- Or summertime, if we need to. There, there are a number of systems thinking about 
providing summer education, taking advantage of the good weather and outdoors and getting kids learning. Well, that would be even better for sure. So listen, it's been wonderful talking with you, Robin. I've been speaking with Robin Lake, director of the Center for the Reinvention of Public Education in Seattle, Washington. She and her colleagues uh, have been gathering systematic data on what school districts are doing across the country. Thank you, Robin, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Always a pleasure, thank you. I am Paul Peterson, this is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.